0: There are times when clarity in wiping out all ambiguity is almost palpable, Uh, like a draft of cool water in a desert, Um, like a mountaintop view after an arduous hike, Uh, fresh air, a cool breeze in the midst of a desert. Uh, Romans 8, 31 through 39, is one of those places, uh, is one of those points of clarity that wipes out all ambiguity. Um, For those especially who, in Christ, wrestle with uh, the question of whether or not they're in Christ, their eternal security, their sense of knowing that they are homed in the beloved, um, this is one of those passages that completely answers the question. Um, And so let me start by reading the first part of verse 31 where Paul asks the question, what then shall we say to these things? Hopefully you've got your Bible ready. We're in Romans 8 verse 31. What shall we then say? What then shall we say to these things? What things? Well, he has just finished expressing what has come to be known as the golden uh, chain of redemption, or the golden thread of redemption, This, uh, that which began with God foreknowing, ultimately resulting in the glorification of these. And so as believers, we have come to understand by virtue of that which God, it's to succinctly kind of quote what Paul said in Philippians 1.6, that, that he who began a good work in us, will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ. In other words, there is no breaking of a link of this chain. There is no going off the rails. Um, What God has begun, he will finish. Since that is true, and the rest of what he says here in chapter 8 is the result of that knowledge. And so it is important for us that we understand that the work that God has done, he has done. Uh, We are saved by grace through faith. Not of works, not of ourselves, right, lest we boast uh, if salvation comes if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly galatians two twenty one um, this idea that it is rested completely in the hands of God to save, and because it is in his hands, what then shall we say to this, and this then begins to bring about everything Paul says that follows: if God is for us, who can be against us? This is the Utmost of rhetorical questions: uh, If God is for us, who could possibly be against us? Is the tenor that this statement carries with it. Uh, it is not like, oh well, this guy or that guy or Satan's. You know, the, there's lots of things against us. But the point is, if God is for us, nothing that stands against us has any chance of ultimately accomplishing the purpose that it, that it would seek to accomplish. Because God is the one who stands in the way. He is the barrier against which all opposition ultimately crashes into, and we stand safely behind it. If God is for us, who can be against us? And now he goes on to express some of the reasoning behind this. But he he goes on in verse 32, "'He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things?' And so he starts in verse 31 by talking about how he has accomplished this. Therefore, who can stand against us? Secondly, he goes on to express that he was personally willing to give that which mattered most. He did not even withhold his own son, but ultimately God, uh, uh, you know, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, did not withhold him, but gave him. That all who would believe in him, whosoever would believe in him, would not perish but have everlasting life. Um, And so we see not only the power of God at work in, in both starting, driving through, and completing that which he sets out to do, but ultimately also the heart behind it, his willingness to give even that which mattered most, his love fully expressed. Because he loved us, this was given, he was given, Christ was given. And so there is a love on God's part that ultimately... Uh, undergirds the motive that uh, that 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 for all that he did in order to accomplish this, um, and of course because of that willingness to give, shall he not therefore freely give us of all these things? Uh, it naturally follows, and so love again undergirds this. Verse thirty three: Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. The accuser, the adversary, the one who seeks to. Stand before God and accuse us, but of course, Christ stands as the advocate between us and the Father uh, John first uh, John. And so the idea that that there are those who would seek to accuse and condemn, but the response to that it is God who justifies. Now we spent a lot of time talking about these things, so there's a part of me that that really wants to kind of break down these ideas again, but but the other part of me just wants to see this passage in the beautiful summation sense that it's given. Uh, in other words, when when these words were read to the church in Rome, as Paul was writing them, I mean you can just see that he is just reasoning through under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the result of all that God has done. and it's it's it is a praiseworthy statement. It is a series of sentences that are intended to evoke a response of worship in the recognition of all that God has done. And so there's a part of me that doesn't want to sort of do an autopsy of the passage because the passage just speaks. And so again, uh, when those in Rome would hear these words, this is at the end of Paul's richly, deeply theological explanation of God's purposes being fulfilled in this kind of thing. And now he talks about the purpose that has been fulfilled. And you can almost imagine those believers in Rome listening to these words with that rush of relief and release pouring over them as they would hear these things culminating in verse 39 which we'll get to. So again, what shall we say to these things if God is for us who can be against us? The answer is nobody. He who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all. Again, this was God who did this, who ultimately delivered his son. This was the foreordained pre-predetermined counsel of God that Christ ultimately was the, to go to the cross and die for the sin of the world. It is God who ultimately did not hold him up, uh, did not withhold him, but ultimately delivered him up for us all. How then shall uh, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things, in other words, the inheritance, for example, like in Ephesians chapter one, where Paul talks about the inheritance we'll talk about this this coming Sunday, um, the idea of this inheritance that is given to us if if God was not willing to withhold his own son, why would he withhold the lavishing of that which comes uh, in 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 connection with that relationship now that we're invited to enjoy in Christ? And so there's that. And then verse 33 again, who can bring a charge? Who can accuse God's elect? In other words, the one that God has ultimately not only begun a work in, but finished it in. Who can bring a charge against them? It is God who condemns. It is God alone who justifies, he says here. The one who alone has the right to condemn the lost sinner is the one who actually has justified the lost sinner. And so therefore, the one who can see the most clearly, the one who is the offended, and therefore has all the right in the world, uh, in all the right there could ever be to bring condemnation instead, becomes the one who justifies. And so therefore, who can bring a charge? Nobody. God has justified, and it was his right and prerogative to do so, and he did. And so therefore, who can bring a charge against God's elect? Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died. Uh, the one again who had every right and 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 by all rights should have condemned us, did not. Uh, in John's gospel, Jesus speaks about how the Father has committed all judgment into the hands of the Son. And rather than judge us, he has instead justified. He has instead saved. He has instead taken our sin, that which condemned us, and has nailed it to the cross. This is why, when we spent all of our time uh, in the previous chapters looking at the law of God and uh, it's perfect standard and it's beauty because of that. Yet it stands as our death sentence because we're incapable of keeping it. Well, this is, this is that which would ultimately condemn us. But rather than condemn, Christ took our sin upon himself that we might instead be justified. Um, the propitiation, as John would put it in his first epistle for our sin, the absolute satisfaction of God's righteous standard that was against us has now been taken out of the way. It's been taken care of. The debt has been paid. Uh, We have often spoken of this, and this becomes now this beautiful um, expression of the result of what Christ has ultimately finished. Uh, It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. He is not our enemy. We are no longer seen as adversaries, but as sons and daughters, uh, co-heirs with Christ unbelievably. And it is he who actually even makes intercession for us, both in the ultimate sense of having paid for our sins, but even still he ever lives and makes intercession for us. Uh, How beautiful and beautiful this truth is. Um, Who shall separate us? Now here we go. Who shall separate us from the love of God, or the love of Christ, I should say, shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine? It's, it's, It's as if Paul is doing everything in his power to demonstrate, to explain, to express just how fully and completely this justification is. Notice again, let these words just sort of ring in, in your ears. Um, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Again, he goes on to enumerate and list things that that would be seen as that which could uh, uh Shall tribulation or distress? Tribulation speaks of the agitating of the waters, the idea of, uh, of the unsettled nature of circumstance and that kind of thing. Uh, shall tribulation, shall distress, persecution or famine, nakedness, peril or sword? Matter of fact, he goes on to quote here uh, from Psalm 44 For your sake we are killed all day long, we are accounted as sheep for the slaughter, yet in all things. In other words, with all of these things that we see as oftentimes as examples of us maybe not being saved, if I was truly a child of God, why would I be going through these difficulties and persecutions and tribulations and all this thing? Why am I being led like a lamb to the slaughter and this kind of thing? If God really loved me, this wouldn't happen. No, instead, Paul says here, these things do happen, yet... Verse 37, in the midst of this fallen world, and all of these things that we would see as evidences of our not being justified before Christ, maybe evidence that God doesn't love us or care, rather instead, verse 37, yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We see these things from a different lens because we are justified. The idea here, among the ideas here, is that Believers don't have to see these things as though they are an evidence of God not loving us, but rather as opportunities for him to show us the victory we have in Christ through them. Um, One very simple way to understand this is that when we ultimately breathe our last on earth and we open our eyes in eternity, we will recognize that we have ultimate victory, that none of those things ultimately kept us uh, from God's ultimate purposes in our lives and ultimately bringing us home. And to bring that perspective into life is one of the ways we experience victory. As a child of God, walking with Jesus, I do not have to wonder if the circumstances of my life are are being used by God to condemn me. They don't. They may be being used by God to build me. They may be being used by God to correct me. But in no way are these evidences of my not being a child of God. I am a child of God by God's grace That was simply received by faith. And therefore, all of the circumstances now are seen in a very different lens, very different lens. And so none of these things actually separate me from the love of God, but rather instead, they are opportunities through which the victory of Christ can be demonstrated in and through my life. Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors, not just conquerors, but more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded. Paul is absolutely certain. He is with unequivoc- He is unequivocally convinced. There is no shred of doubt in his mind, nor should there be in ours. Oh, that we would be able to say ourselves, for I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. I would encourage you to go read that again on your own. We're all done here. Take a moment and just read through that again. And read through this whole passage again. This is the summary, the summation statement of everything that has come before in explaining what God has accomplished. Therefore, Because those things are true, this now is the result. Nobody can accuse me. I mean, Satan will accuse us, but those accusations don't stand. Uh, Nothing can separate me from the love of God and Christ. I'm justified, and nothing will change that. Because he who began that good work will complete it until the day of Christ. And so therefore I can know and be persuaded Again, that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. As believers, we are settled in Christ. Now that changes our entire motivation for living, doesn't it? There are those who, out of fear that we'll lose our salvation, will do acts of service for God. We will try to live out our Christian lives in exemplary fashion. We should. But the reason why we should is very different. Some will do so because they're afraid if they don't, that maybe somehow they'll fall out of the grace of God or something. A passage like this is to be memorized, internalized, digested, fully embraced, so that we might experience the freedom that we now have in Christ from all penalty for our sin. Freedom from the justice that should have come upon us because it has instead come upon Christ. And therefore, in him, we stand justified in the sight of the Father. Um, a matter of fact, turn to First John uh, for just a moment. Let's read it the way he puts it. First uh, John uh, chapter 2. First John, I, think I just bumped the microphone again. Sorry about that. First John, oops, I just went to First Peter. Hold on a second. I should have actually. This is why I stick a bookmark in my Bible when we do these a lot of times, so I can just get there quicker and that kind of thing. So First John, chapter two. Um, my little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. The idea that he stands as our advocate before the Father, and the Father sees us through his finished work. Of course we still commit sin. There are those that believe in such a level of holiness among believers that we no longer sin, and if we do, we must have somehow lost our salvation. That's how the argument so often goes in the hearts and minds of many. But that's not what John is saying. He is not saying we don't sin. Matter of fact, he says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. Of course we have sin. But it is that Christ stands as our propitiation. The one who, again, as we said earlier, has satisfied in his shed blood, in his death and resurrection, has satisfied uh, the righteous wrath of God against sin and against sinners. He took it upon himself. And because that is true, that is, again, a very succinct way of explaining what Paul has been spending chapters describing where God has ultimately been the one who is responsible for paying the debt that we owed, a debt we could never pay. And now because that debt is paid, our position in him is sure. Nothing shall separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You can sleep soundly knowing that you're in him. Again, our motivation for holy living should be one of thanksgiving, not one of feeling like we need to somehow make up ground, that we need to earn something back that we've somehow lost. If that's our perspective, then it's guilt that is ultimately driving us to try and live for Jesus. But that's not the motivation he wants us to live with. As a matter of fact, that guilt and shame has been paid for in the crosses, at the cross as well, in Christ's own blood. And so now the motivation for holy living is one of thanksgiving. Father, I am sorry that I messed up again. i I. Did this, I thought that, I did whatever. I'm sorry that happened, but thank you. Thank you, thank you that that was paid for at the cross, that I don't have to grovel my way back into your good graces and that kind of thing. But please do help me to grow past this. I pray that the Holy Spirit would have that part of my life and and move it away, so far from where I'm at anymore. And I'm able to just live for Jesus without being tripped up by this thing. Help me in this, Lord. I thank you that I'm justified, but on a practical level, I still need your help. Wretched man that I am, as Paul said, but I thank you that in Christ Jesus, my Lord, I am saved and I have no fear of judgment anymore. As a matter of fact, I think we've said this before, but, you know, John also says in his first epistle that perfect love casts out fear. Well, the context he's speaking there is fear of judgment. Perfect love, in other words, God's perfect love for us and our embracing understanding of it releases us from all fear of judgment because we know that we are accepted in the beloved. We've been justified in Christ. This is why theology is so important. This is why we spend time in the scripture. This is one of the reasons why we spend time uh, seeking to understand the scripture because that clarity once again wipes out all the ambiguity. I don't have to wonder about my standing in Christ If I know that I've put my trust in him and putting my trust in him means putting my trust, not only in him and who he is, but also what he has done, which is intrinsically rooted in who he is. So our belief in him, our trust in him wipes out all fear, our knowledge that he is the Lord and he took all my sin away. And I will never stand in judgment of that. Um, Paul would say to the Thessalonians that we have not been ordained to wrath. Wrath is not for us because Christ has taken it all upon himself. Um, again, I there's a part of me that, that wants to break down every little bit of this and do word studies and all that kind of thing. And there's, there's a place for that. I'm not diminishing that. We do that in a lot of our studies. Um, but every time I read this passage, there is an exuberance that comes from just letting these words wash over us. They mean what they say. And I don't know that I would do more justice to it by spending a little more time on a Greek term here and there in this case. Maybe I would, maybe I wouldn't. I don't know. I don't mean to diminish that. But I know for me, and that's partly why I want to share it this way with y'all, is that um, the release and relief that come from knowing based on God's own word the freedom that I have from all condemnation and judgment uh, everything he said in verse 1 of chapter 8 now reaches its climax here in this, I can't call it a song of praise per se, but it it should be almost, you know, in these words here that close out chapter 8. So spend some time thinking about these things, praying over them, especially if you're somebody who struggles with your salvation. Am I really a believer? Am I really a Christian? We'll settle the issue if you're not. Put your trust in Jesus. Lord, I do believe that you are the Son of God, that you're God incarnate in the flesh, and that you took my sin upon yourself at the cross and paid for it once and for all. And all that remains now is for me to believe you and what you did, to put my trust in you, to know that you have taken all my sin upon yourself. You have paid my debt. It is paid in full. It is finished. Um, Settle that. And then rest in knowing that you belong to him and so let me just maybe just let me leave that there and let the holy spirit just have his place in your life and helping you embrace and stand upon these glorious truths and we'll continue to pick up and we uh we're going to move into chapter nine actually chapters nine through eleven are as so much of the book already obviously has demonstrated is extremely rich um chapters nine through eleven um uh, are are Uh, continued mountaintop theology kind of stuff, but it's also something very intimidating for a lot of believers too. And I'll just sort of let you know in advance that there are two main themes that run throughout these next few chapters, um, really that have begun here in chapter 8, but uh, really become a very theological um, thing throughout these next few chapters. The two themes that run through it are God's uh, sovereignty— but also his demonstrating of that sovereignty, an example through the people of Israel, and so uh, those two themes run throughout. And there's some wonderful things to consider as we make our way through this. Um, some wonderfully encouraging things. Uh, matter of fact, even things that touch on what we just talked about today come through once again in chapter eleven and, and elsewhere too. But in chapter eleven, there's some wonderfully poignant statements made. Uh, in regard to some of the things we've we been talked about today. So stay tuned and stick with us as we make our way through but thanks for watching, thanks for listening, thanks for joining in. And um as I mentioned in uh, a community post on our YouTube channel, uh, if you're listening to this on our our audio podcast Uh, As the summer winds down, my family and I are doing a few things here before my wife goes back to her teaching gig uh, in the schools. Uh, She's an ESL teacher, and uh, she's about to go back to work next week. So there might be a couple of days here and there. uh, Already there's been a day. We have a couple of days we haven't posted. Um, It may be that they're a little light this week as we do a few things together as a family. Uh, And then next week, uh, as we move into August, uh, posts will be much more consistent again. We just want to try and squeeze a few things in. Um, uh, as we close out the summer, so thanks for your patience and thank you again for watching and listening. But Father, we thank you for your grace and goodness. We thank you for your deep and abiding love. We thank you that uh, your desire for us is to know you and to know you well and and with that knowledge of you comes the security and the uh the understanding that we are accepted in the beloved that our debt has fully been paid that we are um, that we are free from the penalty we're free from Uh, any accusation sticking yes certainly the devil could accuse us of what we once were and and even what we still um, sometimes fall into today when we when we commit a an act of sin but we know that those accusations no longer stand because we have an advocate before the father even jesus christ the righteous and so we thank you that our place in you is secure help us to rest in this knowledge help us to rest in these truths Thank you, Father, for the comfort, the really the warm blanket of theology that helps us to recognize that we are safe and secure in your hands. And even as Jesus said, no one shall snatch us out of his hands or yours. So thank you for this. We love you and praise you and pray that you continue to help us as we study your word uh, to get to know the word of God, that in doing so, we would come to know all the more the God of the word, you, the one who loves us out uh, to the uttermost. Thank you, Father. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.